Welcome to another episode of Product-Led Growth Podcast. I am your host, Maya Voye, and together we are searching for the best trends and processes throughout fast-growing companies. My guests today are Nora Shi, Growth Analytics Manager, and Eduardo Gomez-Ruiz, UX Research Lead at Miro. The goal of this episode is to give you guidelines on how analytics and UX research can give us amazing insights on how to form delightful products that customers will love. Welcome to the Product-Led Growth Podcast, Nora and Eduardo. How are you doing today? Thank you, thank you. Good energy, good way to start. <laughs> That's brilliant. You guys are in Amsterdam. How are you feeling today, Nora? Good, good. Thanks for having us. Super happy to be here together with you guys. Uh, do you want to share a story how we met? Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So we met during a user research interview, and this is exactly why we're doing this uh, interview podcast. And it's very good to be here and happy to share more about my experience and also together with Edu. Yeah. Yeah, that's spectacular. It was such an amazing experience for me because I'm often part of the research, but I have never, ever, ever encountered something like you are doing in Miro. So I definitely wanted to invite you guys to explain what your process is so that our listeners can be inspired to do more research and just like generate better customer insights. So let's warm up by saying what led us to the point that we are today. Eduardo, what did you do before you joined Miro? Well, before Miro, I was working at Uber in the global research team. But I think it's important to share, I don't have a background in design. I studied industrial engineering. And it was during my MBA that I reached a tipping point of, oh, oh what am I going to do next? And I discovered in a small course, a design thinking course during my time at IE Business School, and that completely changed my focus and, and my passion. And then I, I started working on this first on small agencies, then bigger agencies, and then at Uber. So I joined Miro last year, halfway through last year, and I've really enjoyed the ride of working on such a cool uh, product and a very, very special culture. Oh, that's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing this experience. I will ask what's the tipping point later, but why don't we move to Nora? Uh, Nora, what did you do before you joined the team? Yeah, sure. So my background is quite different from Edu's background. Uh, my first job was in consulting, so it was a pretty traditional consulting company, but it was also quite unique experience because I was in the analytics incubator. So a lot of my data analytics technical training come from that job experience. Meanwhile, over the years, I realized I want to take more ownership of the project, see through project development from front to end. So that's how I moved from consulting to an Uber Eats. And we have a brief overlap with Edu there in the Amsterdam office. And then now I'm super lucky to be in a very exciting startup called Miro. How big is Miro? So I actually lost track. <laughs> Uh, in terms of the size of the team, I think when I joined, the Amsterdam office was around 30 people. And now we have more than 100 people here in the Amsterdam office alone. I cannot comment on the size of the business. I'm not sure what is confidential and what is public yet, but I would say like we're a really fast growing company. We're in the super exciting phase right now. I think we, we can share from the time we both joined less than a year ago, uh, mm -hmm. the company has tripled the size of employees and I don't know how many X the, the number of active users. So that's a, a tremendous growth that it's hard to cope with sometimes. And we welcome all the love from our users, but still it requires so much work to put all the pieces together and adapt the experience to all of the new users that are joining the platform. Yeah, absolutely. And fuel with some awesome investment money and with the momentum of time that is right now, I personally don't even imagine my life without Miro. It's impossible to think how we will do workshops without you guys. So thank you so much. I wouldn't say for your service, but for your awesome contribution to the online experiences that we are having. And what is interesting is that you kind of work together, but you also sit on a different teams, right? So let's gain some insights. How does, for example, look like to work at UX at Miro, Eduardo? Hmm. Yeah, great question. So we are a growing team of about 30 people, I'd say. 
And in the UX team, the main thing we do is understanding what are the problems our users have and how can we use those problems inspiration to solve and, and create new products, new features, or improve the ones that are already there. So most of our time is spent first in understanding the problem, and that's where UX research comes very handy and necessary. And then working with product teams, that means PMs and engineers in crafting some solutions that may work. And this is where analytics will come in, uh, pointing out the trends, the data, the usage, and I'll let Nora comment on that. <laughs> but before we do that, let's just bring you back for a little moment. Uh, could you share an example? Like what a typical task is that you are getting into your department and how do you solve it? Let's make it vivid. Mm. So one example could be starting a week with a meeting with your stakeholders and exploring how can we make the workshop experience better? And for that, we had in the past month worked on a foundational study to understand how facilitators and participants go about the experience, then build up an artifact, like a job map, where we see all the key moments of the interaction, what are their, their jobs to be done, and how we can ease those jobs. So that could be somehow my day-to-day, -day, like working with the stakeholders to make them feel the user process and the user pains and then explore some potential solutions. So maybe this week we started a design sprint and I'm, I'm very happy because we brought in uh, Jape Knapp. Uh, oh, nice. Very nice. Congratulations. Love the design sprint book. And we're working together on various challenges that the company has to really build delightful solutions and, and build them very fast and, and test them very fast and then iterate as needed. So that is where the, the UX team is, is kind of bringing the leadership and the process and the, the way of being very user-centric. Mm, beautifully explained. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Nora, sorry for a little interruption here, but I wanted to have a, like a little bit more of a plastical example here for the listeners because that was super interesting. And let's move to another interesting team of Miro. This is the growth team. What are you guys doing at growth team? Yeah, happy to talk about it. Well, I guess I'll start with essentially Miro as a product, right? So essentially we are a online whiteboard tooling that helps distributed team to collaborate better. So if you think about how that impacts our growth model, is a lot of our growth come from virality. If one user started using Miro, likely he would invite his coworkers or collaborators to also use Miro. And this is how we acquire most of our users. The goal of the growth team is essentially we want to capture this viral loop and we want to understand how can we make this deepen this viral loop and how can we make our user acquisition, retention, and monetization more efficient. So this is kind of the technical perspective of how growth team work. But really underlying this, what we work behind is very similar to what Edu's team focus on is we want to understand how we can bring a better product experience to the customers because happy customers bring to more efficient growth. So what we're looking to is what are the user problems, how we can solve the user problem, and then we evaluate directly looking to our growth metric to see if we identify problem A and we implemented product change B, how does that impact our metric C? We tie everything together and then we want to essentially provide from the data team perspective, we work very closely with research, with product team to drive this insights and provide this visibility into the performance. And from the product side, of course, we work very closely essentially is to provide a better feature and provide a broader better product experience to our mirror users. Mm, I was very, very, very surprised that you didn't say anything about the acquisition. Of course, we understand that the virality and the viral loop is probably the most awesome acquisition channel for you. But maybe just like for us to understand, is growth also handling the acquisition channels at Miro or is it organized differently? Acquisition is part of the growth. So if we think about it, the business model for Mira is we have the freemium product. So even before, for a lot of the users actually come into Miro, even before they are registered as users, they have some level of interaction with our product or understanding of the product. So how can we have a good experience even before the registration step 
this is part what we are looking into from the acquisition. And of course, like a very important part of the acquisition team is also our growth marketing. So raising our brand awareness, reaching out to potential users through different marketing channels. This is also like a big focus of our business right now. Mm, how many people sit in the growth team of Miro? <laughs> probably, I don't know the detailed headcount. Probably 150, 100. Oh, that's nice. So probably are also divided into certain subgroups, right? Yeah. So if you think about the org, is we have the engineering team, the product team, the data team that all sits within the growth topic. So I think it's a pretty sizable team, although I actually don't really have a a good number offhand. <laughs> you gave us a perfect number, so it's more than five and less than 200. But anyways, you are also like teaming up, for example, how we met uh, when you were doing this research together, you're also teaming up with other departments, right? So Eduardo, is that something that you do a lot? You said stakeholders before, are these like internal stakeholders, external stakeholders? How does this collaboration look like? I think the first part is building alignment. And by building alignment, I mean that we as a whole team understand and feel the user and they, um, bring the user voice to the table. So that's really, really important. And even though I make the nicest reports and artifacts and create storytelling, nothing like firsthand experience. So I try to bring as many stakeholders to the research as possible. And they are always given two options. The option of observing and taking notes. That's a bit more passive. It's always fun and enriching. And then the option of being the protagonist, the the leader. And there is a nice debate in, in the field of UX research into which one works better and when and why. So I'm always offering both. But in this case, I'm very pleased to share and especially hear from Nora, how was her experience of leading a research? So I don't want to step into your role and change my hand for a sec, but in general, the idea is we bring people together and we make sure that they understand and feel the user. That's the, the key answer to your question. Amazing. Did you just ask Nora, how did she feel like when she had to participate in the research? Was that the question? It was one of the questions. <laughs> like question, all right. right? All right. Let, let's dive into that. Sure. Why not? So Nora, when you explain your background, you strike me like as a very analytical person, right? And a lot of, I don't want to be stereotypical, but like a lot of people that I know consider themselves introverts, people that are working with numbers, that is. So how was your transition like from being all into numbers towards having to speak with, I wouldn't say editing uh, less than interesting people from all around the world to do research? Yeah. First of all, I'll bust the myth a little bit of uh, data analyst being introvert. So for me, it is true. I'm like 50% introvert, 50% extrovert. Um, but actually on my team, you see a couple of people who was uh, extrovert, I would say. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think this is a common stereotype. And I do think actually like, yeah, it's a quite diverse group, but of course, like overall data analysts, the, the kind of impression you get is working with data and not so much with people. Personally, I, I really do like uh, working with people. And for me, I think like what ultimately, what does this do either by doing data analytics research or uh, doing user interviews and talking to the customer and the ultimate goal is the same. It's problem solving. So you want to gather whatever data points you can get to say, okay, how can I solve this problem? So this data, it could be your internal data in sitting in some SQL database, or it could be you do five to 10 different user interviews, and then you gather those really valuable qualitative data points. Because essentially what you can do from the data perspective is you can look into the trends, the behavior patterns of users in aggregate, And then you can formulate some hypothesis of, okay, I see the number going this way. My hypothesis is we launched this feature and that's why user behavior changing certain ways. But you wouldn't be able to validate it, uh, fully validate it until you talk to the customer and hear what they have to say. I think usually the skepticism come from a typical data analyst be like, you've only talked to 10 people. We have X many of customers. This is 0.000 blah, blah, blah percent of users. This is not reliable. 
But actually, what is interesting is once you talk to more than five customers or even more, I think Edu probably can provide a more scientific <laughs> validation of that is a lot of the things corresponds with the data really well. And you really kind of can just click in terms of, okay, I see two sides of the story now. It really helped me to put the puzzle together. And a lot of the common feedback coming from the customer is actually not that different. And then it's a really efficient way for me to identify the bottlenecks or the blockers in our product and how we can improve that. Yeah, so this is kind of a long-winded answer, I guess, to your question. Of whether or not I'm an introvert or extrovert. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's totally amazing because you just opened this awesome field or of like, do we first see the number and then we deep dive into what is going on in the heads of customer or is it vivers? I, I kind of see that it is like a chicken and an egg problem. So is there like a clear sequence to it or it all depends? How do you guys see this? So when it comes to like research methods, are you like cherry picking from one basket, whatever fits the problem? Or do you have sort of a process in which those methods are sequenced? So I think like one is like at the stage of the company, I think Miro, we are a startup, but we have a relative sizable data team that can afford to do bottom-up analysis and do all the opportunity mappings and then started like zoom in and deep dive into a specific user problem. Probably if you're a five to 10 people startup, you don't really have that much data at hand. You have to use your intuition a little bit more. Specifically for my example and the project I worked with you and you do together, it actually started with, there's a lot of pre-work that we did in the data site. So we look into the entire customer base and we out of all the different patterns, we see a very specific cohort of users that they have changing behaviors. And then we come into question of why this segment of users is growing so much, what they're thinking, like, uh, how can we convert them better or how can we uh, make our product better for them? So this is the, the premises of, uh, of my experience of doing user research. Mm, you crushed my dreams. I thought that I was selected to participate in the research because I'm an extraordinary friend of Miro and I like your statuses on LinkedIn, but instead I was a part of some weird cohort. All right. Uh, yeah, that or so, that or so. Well, let, let me ahead. say that actually you, Maja, were rewarded for completing a previous survey and that we send every month to understand how our users are enjoying workshops. So you already gave us a hint, which we decided to really take in and say, okay, let me pull from that hint. But in general, we define, okay, what are the research questions that we want to answer? And then who are best positioned to answer those questions? And we use data to define cohorts and then do a sample of people who fit into each of the cohorts. Yeah. Mm. Are you saying that you are just not writing Facebook statuses? Hey, friends, would anybody like to come and test my product? But that you are actually doing uh, user recruitment for research a little bit differently? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Nora described it properly. It's typical to query users in our data and then invite a sample of them to meet us. And compared to other places where I worked previously, I see an overwhelming positive response. Uh, people hmm. want to talk to us and sometimes they don't even want to accept the, the compensation, participant compensation and gift. And it's really cool. Some of them come really prepared and they have some talking points to talk about. And I always make sure that they have some time towards the end to share those on top of what we wanted to learn. But without deviating so much from that first topic that you opened, I'd like to ask Nora, Nora, how did you feel before leading your very first end-to-end -end research? I think this is like, instead of a one or two interview, it feels like a two to one interview. <laughs> but I, I'm more than happy to share here. I think like definitely, I mean, without any user research experience working into it, it can be a little bit intimidating because like you don't have experience with it. Um, you don't know what exactly the process it is. So basically what we did here is like, first of all, I really appreciate kind of the support we got from the team. And essentially is I have a question, I was talking to my team member and they were like, oh, we should uh, totally do user research and understand the why and the motivation behind those users. And I was like, okay, great. Then what's the first step? 
the good thing is I have Edu stuck right there. So I can just stuck him immediately be like, hey, can you onboard us and give us some guidance of how to do user research? So I think the part of the preparation is super important. Aligning on the problem statement, aligning on the persona of who you want to interview and who you solve the problem for. And then, of course, like Edu has a lot of experience um, already and mirror with the team building those incredible assets of how do you, for example, the most simple part is arrange your meeting notes and how do you take notes? What is the dynamic? What is the best practice if you are the first time conducting interviews and how you get feedback from your teammates about your interview style, about how you ask questions? And I think this is definitely a learning process along the way, but I think it's it's like just a very interesting field actually to get into. And I think I highly recommend the data analyst who's listening to this podcast now, if you have this luxury in the company to put you in contact with the user firsthand, I highly recommend everyone to uh, either participate passively or actively into a user research uh, interviews or some sort of that format, because I think this really gives you a lot of the insights into your product and into your customers. And a follow-up, sorry, Maja, a follow-up question, like what was the benefit for you, Nora, of having done that process? So I think twofold. One is, it's fun. And I like talking to customers and it helped me understand our product better. So this is kind of the personal, but the second vote is if you have quantitative data skill sets and you sit in a data team, and then you also, for example, lead a user research project, you can iterate essentially on the insights generation very quickly because you see what's happening from the aggregate perspective, the user's behavior, you can immediately validate in the user research. And for additional questions, you can, again, come back to the data set. So the iteration loop happens very quickly. And then it clicks very quickly for you to be like, hey, this is what's happening. Like, I have something to contribute. I have solved this problem and you can share these insights with the rest of the team. So I think it really helps with the speed of problem solving, especially in the startup environment. I find it incredibly helpful. Cool. Eduardo, did you hide yourself a little bit not to get follow-up questions and rather like pass the ball to Nora? <laughs> no, 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 no. You'll get follow-up questions. Get all, but... <laughs> no, that was brilliant. Discussing why is totally important. And Nora, thanks for giving beautiful perspective to all the people who are not like initially working in marketing on sort of like customer-centric roles. And thanks for like giving this awesome invitation to absolutely try that. This is a beautiful point, something that I will hope our listeners will take and use for good on their work. But Eduardo, I need to dive into some details here. So you said that the acceptance rate of the invites that you are sending out at Miro is exceptionally high. Could you give us some benchmarks? What is a good acceptance rate and how many invites should you be sending out in order to recruit participants for a decent amount of research that you want to do? Yeah, I think a, a rule of thumb is that to recruit for qualitative research, you need to email about 10 times more people than you want to meet. So 10% could be kind of the reference. In our case, I think we are close to 40%. So sometimes we end up doing more user sessions because more people end up kind of picking a slot. So we tend to combine in the screen survey if all of the answers are the ones that we are hoping to get, then we kind of show a Calendly link. But if we see that many more people may end up doing that. And it happened to me a couple of times. Then we don't show the calendar link. We screen, we see and, and check through their answers and then invite them like in a follow-up email with the calendar link. So that, that could be a bit the, the reference. Gotcha. And there is another like, I would like to hear some funny stories and I bet the listeners would like to do that too. Could you, both of you, tell us one example of a user interview that you will never forget? Hmm. Well, I was talking to this girl whose, whose name is Maya and then later I'll share it. That doesn't count. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> 
I have one, I interviewed an Italian agile coach. No, he wasn't an agile coach. He was a software engineer, Italian software engineer. And my first project at Mirror. And then he was referring to all of our features and elements with a very funny tone. Uh, for example, he was saying, those arrows that are kind of running around and they are overwhelming, overwhelming. And then it was really funny to, to show to the team that things that many people love, like those arrows that give a sense of being together in the same room, also overwhelm, uh, especially new users who are not that used to this type of tools. So his video went a bit viral within our company just to make evidence and make it very concrete how our users feel towards some of our features. Oh my God, that's incredible, a viral video. <laughs> Nora, do you have like a funny story like that? Because I would like to uh, let you off the hook that quickly. So... I guess like overall, the experience is like very positive and kind of not as crazy as what you do was, was describing probably. I do think like it is quite interesting. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I was interviewing someone and then she brought her coworker because uh, so it was like a two person show up and then say, I brought my coworker because she's so super passionate about Miro. And uh, they really was just like, they started with like, okay, this is the list of feedback I have for the product. And it was like super passionate. It was a very engaging, productive conversation. And you do also touch on it a little bit earlier. Um, and then I've sent a follow-up email about the compensation. They were like, oh, we had no idea. We actually will receive compensation. We really just want to chat with you because that's how, like, how much we like the product and how much we care about it. And uh, I think like we see that quite a lot in different users. And this is also kind of like a rewarding moment for you to, as this researcher going into and the interviews and talk to people to see, yeah, like the emotional aspect of it. So, yeah, not crazy, but like a bit of fun. Oh, that's sense. beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, maybe for the sake of just like clarity, who could explain more about rewards? So the types of rewards that you are offering for the participation in the research. And the second question that I will have, so you can cherry pick uh, the question that you want to answer, is how do you measure customer love? Admiro, <laughs> who takes what? Well, let's take the first one. It's very tactical. We have a partnership with Ethnio. That's a company that allows us to provide incentives in the currencies of people. So at the beginning, we just worked with Amazon gift cards in one country, and that was very limited. And then some of our first participants had that poor experience of having to redeem a digital product from the U.S., so Ednio gives them the opportunity to donate the amount to get a gift card or even a PayPal uh, transfer. But we also have a, a middle swag. And, and that's also a really great way to feel more connected to the brand. Maybe you get a pair of socks, some stickers, a Mac, I believe. I don't know exactly the, the details, but that's also an option. And then we can ship it to your address. And then second question Customer love is a great question and normally a very hard one to answer because if you look at them at the aggregate level, it's not going to be changing that much. We have an MPS survey that appears in the product and also appears in email, but I'm not a very big fan of it. I haven't fought that battle yet because there are other priorities that I need to get right first in the research front. But in general, MPS asks you, would you recommend? How likely are you to recommend this product to other people? And that's a future intent and it's not a behavior. So a better way of asking the same question is, have you recommended Miro to others in the past six months or three months? But still, it's about a specific action and not necessarily about love. You may love the product and not necessarily invite others to use it. So I touched a bit on it before. I'm working now on how to make workshops and meetings at Miro a more delightful experience. And we implemented a metric and a way of measuring this love for Miro for meetings and workshops. And that's a set of questions, not just one question. And it's more behavioral and it asks about a past 
recent past uh, event. So within the 48 hours of your meetings, we send you this email. And then if you want to answer, that rate is 2%. It's, it's very low response rate. But still, we ask a very large amount of people. So we get a good sense of how the product is doing and where it falls short and where it delights people. So it is a more useful indication of what should we do with this love or with this lack of love. And you answered both questions. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, but, no, 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 love it, love it, love it, because there are uh, things that we can discuss with Nora in like details. So how did you feel about MPS? Like... As an analytics expert, uh, do you find it reliable? Do you do any segmentations based on S, um, MPS? And have you ever maybe tried something like sentiment analysis of the text or something like that? How would you tackle this as an analyst? That's a really good question. And I don't want to give false answer there because I actually haven't worked on that at Miro yet. But this is the area that we're definitely looking to is essentially how we can make the MPS metric or the customer satisfaction metric as comprehensive as possible. And then another thing I think is can be a very interesting analytics area we're looking to is how can we use natural language processing to understand what are the specific product features people like and what they don't like instead of looking at everything in aggregate. So this is a very interesting area actually like in the analytics domain or industry has been there for a while. And also at Miro, we're trying to catch up on the, the analytics capability of that is, for example, through user feedback, through user surveys. If we can tokenize, for example, the specific insights and say for the media workshop, and then we can do sentiment analysis to analyze the word around it and understand through machine learning what the context, what the sentiment is associated with those specific features that can really help us to scale up the analytics capability of understanding customer sentiments better. But I, yeah, I can't quite comment on how we're doing exactly because I'm not working on a dark firsthand and being a typical analytics person, I think I'm saying things in a quite cautious way and uh, I I definitely don't want to deliver false message there. Yeah, but you definitely give us some awesome idea. Eduardo, you're saying? Yes, I think it's important to highlight wrong behavior that could come out of handpicking a few quotes. Some quotes, when, when you enter your MPS survey, you can write something. And some quotes get reshared and reposted and they get taken as truth and evidence. Of course, it's one piece of evidence, but it's anecdotal. And then that might not be representative of the group of users uh, in that particular segment. And yet it gets used. So that's also something I like to work on. And if we have the capability of uh, making sense of how frequent this, this type of comment comes in, how severe is that problem and how it's impacting our users' experience, then totally, then you have all the details to make decisions. But if you use one piece of evidence and handpick it, maybe looking through the past year of feedback, then you are fooling yourself and you are even lying your stakeholders of having done it. I, I'm not saying that Miro does that, or that I've seen it uh, many times, but definitely it's a behavior to check in and be aware of. Yeah, definitely. So you touched upon this awesome area of interpretation of the results. And if we see a typical, let's say, research flow, right? So first you would recruit, then you would schedule, then you would actually go on the calls and God forbids, record them. Don't forget that. Happened to me once. Terrible, terrible. You feel like wasting everybody. It often happens even to the experienced people. eh? (laughs) No, right. But when you get the recordings and maybe in your case, because you are not in all the sessions, could you walk us through how the process of analysis goes? Because these things, like Nora was saying before, can often be perceived as biased, right? So we need to have like those firm methodologies and just like some sort of a technique to make sense out of this. So how do you do it? Yeah, in fact, when I'm teaching non-researchers to do research, I always tell them analysis is going to be the hardest part. And it's also very hard to teach. So for me, the best way to tell people how to do this is having them do it. 
and then give them feedback in their process before they kind of share it out more broadly. But the typical process, if, if you are in the shoes of a researcher, is to look through the different evidence that you gather from the different sessions. So you are writing down notes in context to what was being discussed. Uh, sometimes you capture the real quote, sometimes you capture the essence of what was shared. Then you have to also observe. And that's also very hard to teach because oftentimes we give uh, the participant the ability to share a screen and show us how they do something. And in seeing them without telling them, oh, you actually made a mistake there, we kind of take notes of that. And sometimes take screenshots during the session or after the session when watching the recording to demonstrate how small and a call to action might be or how someone did not notice the tutorial or how the help desk help center is very hidden no? and inaccessible. So you gather those individual evidences in each of the sessions and then you look through patterns. And all of this is very objective. And then now you bring your own interpretation of those evidence. And this is where you try to keep it honest but you need to synthesize. And when synthesizing, you generally phrase the problem or the user need as something that people told you, but they didn't say specifically. So this is the, the magic or the craft of crafting an insight. And an insight is really a novel piece of learning that captured the essence of the research that you have conducted, even though people didn't see explicitly that. You have observed, noticed, and you need to put your intuition in, in motion. So explaining how to trust your intuition, how to read through the data, how to see patterns is really hard. So the best way to do that is doing it with them or observing how they do it and then uh, showing them some structure to go through. But something very important, and I think Miro provides a lot of value in that, is how you take notes. So I'm a classical guy using pen and paper, but I encourage my team to take notes directly in Miro. So I put together a, a very simple framework where they can capture everything in Post-it, but the process of doing that helps them also connect the dots while taking notes. And then I do a debrief. So all of this process you don't do alone. You involve others in the process of analyzing because by sharing these different perspectives, you come up with stronger, more rich insights. And that was something that Nora did really well. She involved more than five teams in her project, and they brought all their own unique observations about the same type of conversation. And that was amazing. I, I really want to send kudos to her and the team for being so actively involved in the research. Well, why did you decide to invite five teams into the debriefing sessions, Nora? So it comes actually very natural, just uh, how this project was organized. Um, so who's involved in this? Uh, the PM we worked very closely with, uh, UX research designer, as well as analyst. And then we, of course, like depends on, because the research project relates to a couple of different topics, we have people come from, from different teams. And they're all just like super willing to participate and want to talk to the team. So me as a role was coordinating um, a lot of the, essentially the user research process. And it also like to what you do said, reflecting on the learning and then seeing the pattern is so important. So what we have is we have a reflection, like a retro slash reflection slash brainstorming session. Just everyone look at the notes at the same time, identify the patterns and share like what they think about. Because if you're just one person doing a pretty big research, you may or may not bring in your personal bias into it. But if you have like five, six pairs of eyes looking at the same data, they can come into different interpretations. And then learning about what are the insights that it come from as in the team format was actually incredible. And it also helps teasing out a lot of the, uh, the bias in this process. So, yeah. so what Nora doesn't know that she did extraordinarily well was that she was so methodical and so organized and she put together a Slack channel sharing updates every two days or so. And then there's this multiplying effect of having so many different perspectives. And she even put some of those people to conduct user sessions. So 
it was really, really rich. They felt the problem. They understood what was the user point of view. And then together they made the analysis. So when you have more than one person, normally that analysis is going to come a lot stronger because you are joining forces. Gosh, that's incredible. Such a nice story. All righty. So when it comes to methodologies, we were talking about a couple of the methodologies already. Oh my God, look at this. Uh, my mispronunciation of the word methodology, it's terrible. But anyways, we understand each other. So the thing is that we were talking about how to do usability tests, right? So usability studies, we did interview. Apparently, you guys are very flexible with these terms and you sometimes do them together, which is cool. Life is life. And Nora was giving us some nuggets of analytics already and how things are supported with different tools. Would you say that in terms of user-centric analytics and just like support technologies to bring in customer insights, Nora, what are the most important part of the tool stack that supports you capturing these awesome insights apart from Miro, which was already mentioned. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say Miro. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I would say the same. <laughs> no, but like, uh, are you using maybe Hajar, full story, like in terms of analysis, how are you capturing like data in addition to the human to human conversations? Yeah, for sure. So like, I think because the research or so there's a pretty big quantitative component to it. So what we have is we have, yeah, like our internal SQL tools and we use Looker for visualization. So we put like essentially the data side by side with the qualitative learning set as well to provide more context of why we're looking at this problem in the first place. What is the storyline? What is the narrative of it? And then also we have the summaries captured actually mirror as a note-taking tool, as a brainstorming tool. And then we shuffle the information around to fit in the format that either it's in the presentation format or in the brainstorming format, it's um, really more or less the same content, but you want to organize in the way that fits in the format of your work session the best. And in that actually, yeah, nothing super advanced. I'll just say like SQL tools, some Python analytics work and Miro. <laughs> I was sure that you were going to say, ah, we use facial recognitions for our respondents. <laughs> so we know that we can read their body language. <laughs> Wait, she, said something, she said something very interesting, like it's important to feel comfortable showing your mirror board as an unfinished or work in progress thing, because it saves you a lot of time not having to redo a whole presentation in PowerPoint and Google Slides. So we use Miro for everything, probably an overuse of Miro, but it's not an overkill. So we save time and we show each other our work, even the result of our work. So it's all about feeling comfortable with this in infinite canvas and giving it some structure. And we have our own techniques to do that. Yeah, of course. And you bring in like so much more like empathy in terms of what feed, uh, mistakes and what uh, sort of confusions users might have. It's so important to be actually the user of your product if it is, makes sense in your life, of course. that's But totally not true. only that, like you show the process. If you see Nora's board, you can see from the research plan to how was the note taken in each of the sessions to capturing these themes and then consolidating the themes into a report with some key findings next to some data sources. So in a way, you can tell the whole story and the same thing happens in workshops. It's really comforting when you enter workshop and you zoom out and you tell your team or your, your participants, look all that we accomplished today. And it's a, it's a great a gratifying moment. Yeah, of course, it's uh, such a winning moment. Like it's a mini win to see something, figure it out. By the way, do you guys have these templates published maybe in Miraverse that we could link under the description of this podcast? Could you curate a couple of resources that will be helpful for uh, our listeners? Absolutely. We'll share some good resources for note-taking and, and other things that are helpful for planning research. Looking forward to have a bunch of new mirror boards myself here as well, because as you said, talking to people is fun. Analysis, a little bit more intellectually demanding. <laughs> but nevertheless, right now, you probably both started to work with a company like remotely, right? Are you going to offices? 
not possible, but still <laughs> a, a hand-based hiring policy. So we have the opportunity to meet each other whenever it's allowed again. Awesome. Awesome. That's very nice to hear. But you guys also have like teams in Russia, you have teams in America, so in the US and work, of course, is like uh, going on. So we recently opened three, three, four offices and one of them is also in Berlin. So we are now landing in Berlin and hiring engineers and designers over there. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was just uh, knowledgeable about uh, Russia, Amsterdam, and all. So that's interesting to learn. But how is it like for you to coordinate this? Like you have so many different teams. Uh, your teams are geographically dispersed. What is an experience of working in such a decentralized company? I think it only supports the, the type of product and, and setup that we facilitate. So we rely on both asynchronous and asynchronous communication. So sometimes we share things on Slack with the link to a mirror board. We have some sorts of truth where people will go to uh, when they need to search for their own content and, and processes. And in general, there is this good spirit of, I'm always available if you see a slot in my calendar. So if you think I can be of value, then schedule something over and, and we're going to meet. So it's a very, very collaborative culture. And there are many checkpoints for us to also connect in a more informal setup. So sometimes we do yoga together or there is a bingo or a kind of team building events, gamings and all of that. And we still feel like a, a little family. It's, it's definitely growing, but we still know most of the people working at the company by name. Very nice. From your perspective, Nora? Well, from my perspective, I think like working from home, every company is talking about how can we facilitate an effective team. And I think like the online social thing is definitely new to me. And I really appreciate our office. Manager. It's like a big shout out to Juliana <laughs> at this podcast that she really invests time to like build up those social activities when we most need it. And I think like another thing is like a lot of companies talk about tooling. So Zoom or Miro or all those things. I think the technical tooling is one thing that is quite crucial, but I really do think culture is a really big, important thing that companies are focusing on during this time, because I think having like building team collaboration, like making people feel empathy for each other, even though they've never met each other, is not an easy task. And I've seen at Miro, the leadership has invested a lot of time in building the culture. And I think it's actually a really important investment to to support the staff, especially it's a pretty difficult time just um, with the lockdowns and everything. And I think this is what I find has been working quite well so far. And yeah, I really appreciate that. Beautiful. Nora, I won't let you off that quickly yet because uh, just before you gave call to action to our audience that they should be doing research. So the challenge here is what is one thing that you would do differently having known what you know now when you first did your research project? What would you do differently now? I'll do it faster. I'll be less positive <laughs> and I'll reach out to the research team faster because I think like coming from a bigger company previously before Miro, I have this kind of a, a siloed mentality of you're a data team, your responsibility stays within SQL and then the neighbor team is UX. So their responsibility stays in reaching out to customers and such. And I think actually there can be like once you realize there's opportunities for cross-functional collaboration and then you actually work to realize that, you really get a lot of benefit from it. Yeah, if I know better, I will just uh, do it faster. Reach out more often, probably like pay attention to you, do Slack more. <laughs> but I think there is a lot of value that she was proactive and that she was determined to do it herself. Like there was almost no other option, but in this case, she felt that, okay, I'm capable and I'm going to seek for guidance. And I think that's what many other people I met lack, that ability to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hope for the best and seek for support and ask for feedback. And that was what brought uh, Nora till here, that she is determined. Oh, you're oh, very kind. Oh, nice. Nice oh, I, I, really value, <laughs> I really value like everything that she has done. So that would be my call to action for, for this audience. And, and Nora said it already. 
If you think that you can get into research even lightly as an observer or more hands-on and just as Nora did, go for it because it's going to be worth the effort and the experience. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So let's wrap this up by saying a couple of things that our listeners could do in order to start with research as soon as possible. Either you are like welcome to invite them to, to participate in mirror research or recommend some resources, whatever you want, guys. And so we'll drop the mic right after. I said it, I said it. Let's get hands on, get uh, roll up your sleeves and really give yourself the opportunity because it's going to change also the way you feel about your work. I've seen that at Uber, where people who joined research with me, we travel the world in different developing markets and they can really felt the purpose of the work they were doing, especially engineers. They were feeling, oh, wow, now I see how the work I do every day and why I wake up early and I finish working late is changing the lives of people. So you can feel a lot more close to uh, the mission of your company by just sitting in front of you, Susan, really listening. Fantastic. Anything to add, Nora? My call to action is, I would say like I encourage everyone to every day or every week, think about what are you interested to learn about the business or a customer and have a question and see how you can contribute to that or how you want to work with other team to understand that problem and understand your customer and uh, just be creative with uh, what you can use to solve the problem, either be with your internal data, you would use a research data or you name it. I think this is the fun of working in a startup environment and having interesting product to, to develop and yeah, I'll encourage thinking of that. Perfect. Beautifully done. Very actionable, which I love. So it's not difficult. You just have to do it, right? Uh, Nora and Eduardo, thank you so much for being guests at our podcast. We'll link a couple of resources below so that our listeners could deep dive into the subject if they are interested. Otherwise, good luck uh, with your research projects and everything else at Miro. Uh, we have so much admiration for Miro and can't wait to have you back again next year. Or call me in between to do some research. We'll bring you for a user research session. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, have fun and good luck. Thanks for having us. Thank you.